Welcome to Read by Example, where teachers are leaders and leaders know literacy. And I'm delighted to have Michelle Caracapa, and I hope I said your name right. Um, please correct me, though, if I didn't. All good. <laughs> uh, okay. To the conversation here around her, around her blog slash newsletter. I'm still not sure what to call Substacks, uh, something there in the between, but um, in your excellent space, Reading to Lead. So welcome, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And what's your background in literacy and leadership? Yeah. Um, so I've been in education for uh, just over 20 years. I'm uh, based out of New York City. We had our first uh, big snow in over 700 days today. So big snow day, remote learning snow day. Very interesting. Um, but I started as a teacher within the Department of Education. Um, I've taught in um, traditional public settings. I've taught in charter school settings. Um, in the charter world, I was an assistant principal and a principal. I had founded a school in the Bronx. Um, and then I moved over to sort of the system leadership uh, world, which was interesting uh, to sort of oversee academics on a system level. And then the last few years I've been in, in, in um, nonprofit leadership. So work for a national nonprofit really focused on leader development. Um, I've always been super passionate about literacy and I love the convergence of sort of um, the real like deep passion and knowledge about the content paired with like, what are we going to do for it? Like, what are leaders in the school systems in within our system levels as well really going to do um, to think about creating conditions that enable all kids to be great readers and writers and thinkers um, and create those conditions for teachers as well. So that's a little mm -hmm. bit about me. So you've done it all. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> hey, Deborah, welcome. Hey, man. How's, How's it going? Good. Glad you're here. Yeah. We're just getting started. So perfect timing. Oh, great. I did the dash home from. I, uh, yeah, I, took my I told Michelle. Down, took it downstairs last night to, or this morning to uh, take with me and left it. So I was like, okay, I'll do the dash yeah. home. I was going to do it from school. So <laughs> there's no, there are no there are no tardies here. So you're you're all good. All right, good. Yeah, I don't have to walk in. Um, <laughs> just, I was just telling Michelle that Deborah's back in the classroom and applying the skills, but also doing some coaching as well. So she's very cool. Yeah, she's walking yeah. the talk. Yeah. Yeah, it's great to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you as well. So Michelle, your your uh, space, your blog newsletter, Reading to Lead is a place to capture thoughts, wonderings, reflections, circling around the topics nearest and dearest to your heart, of like you just said, literacy, school leadership, educational justice. Um, anything else you want to know, people to know about this space? Like, were you writing somewhere else prior to this space and moved over to here? That's what I did with my blog and moved it to Substack. Um, what's your experience there? Yeah, no, this is my first uh, official blog. <laughs> um, I had the chance to kind of contribute a little bit um, in, as part of various organizations I've been part of, but I had never sort of had my own space. And then I've been in um, an ED program for the last two and a half years. And um, I found myself just like engaged in, I always um, tend to be engaged in reading three, four books at a time, but it was like all of this sort of like academic stuff and just wanted, and lots of papers, right? Um, but wanted to find some space where I could kind of just like almost do that, like thinking out loud <laughs> of how I'm making sense of all of this. So that's sort of what uh, start was the impetus for starting the uh, the newsletter. Yeah. So the writing has really helped you process all the knowledge you're taking in and uh, and then you're sharing it, you know, with everyone else, which has been great. I don't, 
there's so, been so many books and articles you've referenced that I'm like, oh, I've got to put that on my to-read list. So things that have not been in my uh, sphere of, of awareness. Awesome. So yeah, thank you for doing that. So this article that you did write, uh, I love the title. And, um, you know, the reading crisis is an educational justice crisis. And in this post, you shared the following, the gap between our present reality and what's possible for our students is at the heart of the reading crisis. And just, can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a couple things to kind of unpack there. I think so often in the education space, we talk about this notion of like the achievement gap, right? Which tends to be really, really focused on um, a racial achievement gap. How are black students doing compared to white students, right? Um, and I've kind of had in my head, um, right, ed, there's a great education researcher, scholar, Asa Hillard, who says, well, what do we, how do we sort of deconstruct that and really think about the gap between Black students and the excellence that they're capable of versus uh, sort of what is happening for them systemically within our schools. Um, so I think that's a little bit of like sort of the, the gap language there, right? Like what, what could our students holistically across uh, lines of difference be achieving versus what are they actually getting within our school system? Um, and then I think uh, kind of trying to unpack this notion of reading crisis I think there so much in this space tends to be polarized, right? So you see sort of, you see folks who are like, well, it's not a crisis, right? Like it's not an emergency, like everything's okay. I'm like, well, that doesn't totally sit right when we're talking about particularly students who have been denied educational excellence uh, and sort of opportunity for generations. But then I think I, I sort of see the way that this notion of reading crisis becomes um, very politicized in another way, right? And it we it sort of lends itself to these very, uh, I would say, too narrow solutions, right? We have a crisis, and so then the solution is we're going to pass all of this legislation, we're going to do these mandates, um, and then everything's going to be fine. And that's the story that we've been told for about four, three, four decades, and it doesn't necessary. There are not really results behind that, <laughs> but it has not stopped sort of enthusiasm for sort of using the same argument. There is a crisis, so we must intervene and we must intervene in this way. Um, so I think just trying to unpack that and understand, like, how are these terms being used? How do we not sort of explain away the fact that there is a very significant right educational justice problem within our system? Um, but how do we also then expand the conversation so we're not sort of focusing on more narrow solutions that I don't think necessarily will actually solve that bigger problem? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to unpack all of that mentally <laughs> here. <laughs> um, yeah, things I'm hearing it, we keep comparing this one group of students' scores to another group of students' scores, and it's just not. It's 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 it almost sounds like it's apples and oranges because of all of the other inequities that are happening that are you know are just seeming to surface you know through the lens of schools and and what you're asking is stop comparing those types of stop making those kind of comparisons and look at what the potential is versus where they're at and uh, taking more of a strengths based approach to to where what you know where that we can go with that. And, it seems also like when you mentioned you tried all these things, it's like the same story being told over and over, just a little bit differently. So 
I'm not saying reading first, you know, over 20 years ago is the same thing as the science of reading, but it, it's, they seem to rhyme. You know, they have a lot of similarities. And um, so you're asking just to expand upon that and stop focusing just on reading and, and look at some of the, the bigger causes of that. So, yeah, what does policy look like in, from that perspective? I know we've had other people kind of in your world uh, you know, where do we, where do we start with that? And is it homeschool engagement? Is it, mm. you know, yeah, I don't know. Where, where do we begin? It feels so big. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think like in most things there, there is space for sort of both and, right. So uh, what we were talking about uh, just at the very beginning, like, I don't, I think there's something interesting and compelling about like the arguments that Louisa Motes puts forward, right? And I've 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 seen um in my own experiences um students really thrive when they have access to high quality instruction just like period, right? Yeah. <laughs> um so I think there's something to really take seriously there and try and unpack like well why is why are there elements of this research base that teachers have not necessarily had access to. Um, why do we persist? I think a big part of this sort of, like put aside sort of the broader movement towards high quality instructional materials. Like why do so many first year teachers find themselves in classrooms just trying to wade through all of these materials independently, make sense of them on their own, um, not necessarily have clear expectations about, am I supposed to be developing these on my own? Am I supposed to like, do I have a supportive team on this grade level or within my school that's going to actually help me make sense of them? Um, or am I sort of entering something that feels like a more coherent system? Um, mm -hmm. So I think those are important sort of conversations to have and important policy levers for folks, um, certainly within district leadership to be thinking about or school leadership. But then I guess what I would really like to see is just more of an expanded conversation. I feel like so often when you, when people start to advance arguments around um, demographic differences in achievement, you wind up being accused of like, well, you're just explaining it away. And I'm an educator. I can't solve racism and I can't solve inequality. So what can I do? And the reality is like, there is actually a lot that you can, that we can all do collectively within our school system. So I don't see it as sort of turning ourselves away from the very real ways that racism and inequality show up within schools and school systems. Um, so I think, but it's, it's really hard, right? Cause I think policy mm -hmm. levers in general tend to be very, or in, tend to be race neutral or in this policy environment, like we're seeing an active backlash against um, sort of any sort of recognition, acknowledgement around uh, race systems of oppression, et cetera. Um, so I don't know if that means that educators need to then figure out how to sort of, you know, subvert these systems. Um, it's tough. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hearing, you know, it, it may be a, a, a national issue at least, but look how you connect locally within your own systems. And it, mm -hmm. it sounds like a systems issue as much as anything. And um, thinking about teacher turnover attrition and then how to get these new teachers up to speed. And it's, um, so they're prepared to teach that day. And we've got a, not a brand new teacher, but we have someone who's re-entering the classroom. I just pinned you, Deborah, and just mm -hmm. be curious your experience on all this, just coming back into the classroom and having that unique experience. You know, what's What's it been like for you to, re-engage with the system. 
Well, I mean, you know, what's the big, the big word that we all feel is um, the time crunch and the, the amounts of things that are, you know, sit on your plate as a teacher. Um, and the, you know, all of the things that you're trying to accomplish and the, um, and then, you know, one of the things I think that's so critical is that thinking about, you know, how you, how you define what it means to be literate. Like I, I always come back to just that piece of, of, of that and the way that, that we define what it means to be literate, which then drives the kinds of materials that we choose to use, the kinds of um, opportunities that we're putting in front of kids. And um, yeah, and just, you know, the, just the kind of opportunities and things. And, and, you know, you're always, you know, I think you just always feel the crunch of time as a teacher. I mean, it's, it's, it's just always there. Um, and it's like the, the, the slowing down to go farther is is really challenging um you know when you talk about teams and you know all the teams and how we're all going to try to have some of those similar kinds of conversations and yet at the same time everybody's class is going to be just so much different in the ways that they can um take things on and so it's just you know it's just all of this stuff um yeah i mean I, and I, you know i don't know i um I think it's just, it's very challenging. We're all mm -hmm. just in that very challenging spot of things. So, yeah. Yeah. I think you. That probably didn't add one thing to the conversation, but that's no, kind of I, I think, what my brain is no, right I, now coming off of your today. Perspective, <laughs> <laughs> your perspective is, is exactly what we need. And uh, I think just sharing that, Deborah, I think affirms for a lot of teachers who do listen to to these conversations to say, hey, yeah, you're, you know, here's Deborah Crouch, who's an author and just uh literacy guru and you know say hey i'm back <laughs> in the classroom and it's tough you know so i think that's oh, really it is. it's totally it's totally stuff you know because it's mm -hmm. the it's the um it's the thing about that um it doesn't matter how much we know it theoretically it's yeah. the it's looking at the kids that are that are in front of you and thinking okay here's what i know are possibilities you know um and then it's okay. So, what kinds of supports are they going to need to be able to to go there? Because you know, I was just thinking today. You know, I was with my third grade class thinking about writing, and um, and I seriously thought we were over one of these big hurdles of independence. And today it was like, you know, all they kept saying was, "What are we writing about now?" What? Are, and I was like, "Wait, what? Oh no." So like the whole way drive, the whole drive home, I'm thinking about, okay, how am I going to revamp this? And then the conversation is, okay, do I slow it down? Do I kind of move it on and we'll come back, come back to this? You know, here's all those decisions that you have to make as a teacher and yes. all of that swirls through your head, you know? So it's flying the plane while you're, you know, was it building it while you're flying it? Kind of. Yeah. What you're thinking through? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I think it was mine. Oh. There is. Go no ahead, need. There's no need to know what we do. Yeah. No, I was just going to ask, and do you have the benefit of, now, are you, are you, um, do you have peers like that are, are sort of teaching the same type of program as you, or are you sort of doing something more solo? So you are, are you using a shared curriculum? Like, how does that work for you all? We write our own work. We write yep. our own, our own curriculum. So we, you know, we think about what, where the kids are, um, think about the trade books that we want to use. Um, you know, we've got just lots of different pieces of things and 
um, to dual language school. So that puts another um, challenge into it because um, you're trying to figure out how to make sure that the kids are learning really well and developing both languages. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. Now, just thinking about um, you, so I do think that there is um, a, a worthy argument to be made around this notion that get, like given how um, time intensive teaching is, given how many millions of decisions you're making in a day, right? We often hear sort of this narrative around um, giving folks access to a shared high quality, high quality instructional materials sort of takes away, um, should be taking um, something off of teachers' plates. Um, and I think that there are settings where that can make a lot of sense. And I think that <clears throat> it's clear, again, clearly not a binary, right? There are situations where you have incredibly experienced teachers and to ask them to teach from a manual that was not created, you know, sort of by or with them or with our students, like just feels like a loss of the tremendous amount of expertise um, and then I also feel like we're hearing more and more, right? We have these sort of curriculum adoptions that are done almost like overnight. You've got teachers that are trying to then figure out how to teach from the shared curriculum and it's winding up taking them just as much time to figure out how to modify it. And so then the whole argument of like, but we, we saved you time. You don't have to be a curriculum designer now. So now I have to be like a curriculum adopter. Like it doesn't, I just think there's so much nuance in all of these conversations and like mm -hmm. the sort of public discourse on this does not necessarily allow us to have nuanced conversations because it feels so like, are you for this? Are you against this? Like, where do you stand? Um, which is, can be like, kind of concerning. Yeah, I was gonna say the challenge that, that, you know, pops up is when you hand something to a teacher, I think many teachers feel that it has so much more, um, uh, weight than their own decision-making. Mm. And so they don't feel comfortable. Like they're like, oh, this must be the expert or this is what the district wants me to do. Or like they go through that whole, um, uh, you know, just, just feeling that the authority is, uh, you know, someone else has the authority here. And so you just get caught up in so much of that kind of belief system as well. And, you know, I mean, teachers, they, for the most part, have a strong sense of what kinds of things that they want to accomplish. If you sit and talk with teachers, they, you know, they have a lot to offer about it. Um, it's just the challenges sometimes of, of uh, you know, thinking through how this is going to look with different kids. You know, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if we say writing workshop. It's like, okay, how's writing workshop looking for the group of students that I'm working with today? Um, and how will it shape out today versus next week and the week after? So it's all of those, those different decisions and movements that, uh, that we're, having to make the, those decisions. And that's the name of Deborah's substack as well, uh, Teaching Teacher Decisions, Teaching Decisions, which you just posted and writing about your work. So that's another yeah. space to check out. Um, I'm going to ask Michelle to wave a magic wand oh <laughs> and <laughs> change, if she could change one thing about schools as they currently are, what would it be? This was such a hard question. <laughs> um, I feel like the the sort of the magical thing that I would want <clears throat> would be uh, to see schools that really felt that they could take 
full ownership and responsibility for every single student in their care to become fully literate. Um, and that they felt they felt that both that sense of responsibility and the capacity to do so, because I do think that in some, I think you need both, right? I think that there are sometimes um, this like, these systemic inequities are so entrenched within our school systems that I actually think despite individual teachers having high expectations, wanting the best for their kids, um, they often don't feel like they're supported in an environment where they can actually realize uh, sort of what they would want for their students or or what they could potentially even do as a teacher, right? So it's like that that combination of, if we actually had schools where everyone who showed up for work every day said, I can take full responsibility for the learning of all of my kids and had the capacity to do so, I mean, to me, that's mm -hmm. like, that would be the magic. <laughs> well, that would do it. That would do it for me. <laughs> but what are some books that you're, um, you're highly recommending right now? Are any books that you're reading that you're really enjoying? And this goes to anyone, but I'll, I'll go to Michelle here first. Um, yeah, I have a couple, a couple, um, sort of ed policy books that have been shaping my thinking. Um, I have, um, have them on my desktop, my desk side. <laughs> um, but I thought this, uh, book by, um, Dr. Arlette Willis, uh, anti-black literacy laws and policies is, I hate the whole zoom thing, really powerful. Yeah. Um, she is such a, she has such a strong perspective and kind of really goes through sort of um, the history of literacy policy through this lens um, and brings in a lot of a lot of really just compelling arguments. And then um, I also like this volume a lot uh, recently from Rachel Gabriel uh, mm -hmm. as editor, How Education Policy Shapes Literacy Instruction. Um, I think these are both really powerful. And I think that... Um, yeah, I would hope I would want to see sort of more folks, regardless of sort of what side of these so-called reading wars they find themselves on, kind of really just engage with the scholarship, because I think that there are some really incredible people who are kind of really sifting through uh, sort of these policies, the impact of these policies. Um, so, yeah, those are two that I think your your lovely readers on your um, Substack would appreciate. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think. Deborah, you know Rachel too, I believe. Just oh, I do, Twitter yeah. And, I just saw yeah, her she's, like, she's, on. Yeah, she was great. She's a, she's a great follow on Twitter. Follow on Twitter. Who who was the first author though? Um, Arlette Willis, W I L L I S. Arlette Willis, thank you. She has another. Um, I have another book by her. I don't have it out, but it's interesting. You were talking earlier about like how do we define literacy, um. And something that I've been actually meaning to write about based on her book is she just, she uses a lot of these examples to her and I, there's a few co-authors, um, but just made me thinking a lot about, made me think a lot about like the power of counter narrative, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we have, um, it's very easy to sort of, you know, kind of uh, have these deficit minded perspectives. No one can read what's happening here, right? And usually when people say the kids can't read, they're talking about um, phonics, decoding, uh, fluency, maybe as you get up to the higher levels, we're talking about sort of comprehension challenges. Are they thinking critically? Mm -hmm. um, but she, you know, sort of shines a spotlight on like, well, what does it look like for, um, let's say, a, you know, a, a Black first grader who actually has really incredible uh, reading skills all around, really deep comprehension, but it's not, it's not being recognized for that. Um, and I think that, um, 
again, like that's, that's, that's another example of a kid that we're failing as a system, right? I think it's really easy to sort of say, oh, we're failing all of these kids that are not sort of meeting this benchmark. Like, well, we're also failing the student who is coming into first grade already knowing all this stuff and we can't see her brilliance and her strength. And we're not actually doing anything to sort of cultivate how she gets to the next level. Um, and I think she does a really powerful job of sort of exploring some of those those stories. I was just hosting, I hosted a, a PED session today as a coach and um, we were talking, we were using depths of knowledge, web's depth of knowledge to think about tasks and how to design assessments and and decoding and, you know, even fluency ended up on DOK1. And I just prompted me to think kind of what you're mentioning too, like as we define reading as Deborah says, how do you define literacy? As we define it, just as a decoding or even just comprehending comprehension uh, idea that it's it's not hitting that pole potential either. So then, how we define reading is how do we define I think our expectations for kids? If, if I'm hearing that right, yeah. Well, thank you. These are great recommendations, Deborah. Did you? I know you're always reading. Uh, Let's see. Well, you know, I am. Um... I'm diving back into, I mean, I'm one of those people that like, I, I like going back to things. So I just pulled out wondrous words again, just coming back to Katie Woodray's work mm -hmm. and she just, you know, always brilliant. Um, and then just, you know, again, a lot of writing. So I'm, I'm really kind of, that's in my brain right now. So that's, um, that's what I'm digging into or, uh, you know, a lot of um, uh, Ralph Fletcher and, those great writers looking at my floor because I've got them all waiting in the floor. All those great writers, just who who write about mm -hmm. writing. So yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm kind of living right now. Is in yep. that world writing and thinking about supporting writers. Yeah. Cool. And we've got the book study coming up, How to Become a Better Writing Teacher, which I'm excited to have. Actually, I'm Mac Lover and Carl Anderson here for the next chat. So um we're excited about that. I am reading. Uh, I've I've been I've been slow to. It's a small book, but I've been very slow <laughs> to uh, absorb it. But uh, data, data everywhere by Victoria Bernhardt. And she's got <laughs> she's got thicker books. This is like the Reader's Digest version of her resources. But I love the uh, comparison of. Uh, and I've shared this with the district that I help coach. It's really um, are you a school focused on compliance or are you a school focused on commitment? And I'm thinking about all this legislation, you know, and I, in Wisconsin, it's called Act 20, but basically you can teach this way, but not that. You can use these curriculum resources, but not these. And, you know, it's it's being required and, and you know, districts are flocking to these trainings. And then you know, we're hosting also some other trainings, which actually have a lot of evidence behind them. Not to say that this other legislation does or does not, but it's you know, sometimes can be kind of Difficult to get districts there when it's not a requirement. So mm. that's something. I, that's something I'm trying to. How do I pose that to to districts in a way that's, you know, getting them to think, but also put some a little bit of pressure on them. Um, the other book I've been using for um, just PD hosting PD, and it's uh, a colleague in Wisconsin shared this with me. Uh, Fun retrospectives. It's by Paolo Caroli and. Tanya Caetano Coimbra, uh, fun retrospectives, but it has a lot of, uh, lots with post-it notes and doing some like visual data work. 
or just some inclusion activities, um, some movements, some, the you know, one is a success criteria where you put post-it notes of your plan going forward, but in the form of a success criteria. So if you're familiar with adaptive schools or any other kind of you know, national school reform uh, protocols, um, it's kind of like that, but a little bit more, even a little bit more uh, condensed and easy to do. So um, this is a, just, we all, we're all in the uh, coaching world in some respects. So with that, uh, Michelle, I want to thank you for being here and Deborah as well. Uh, Michelle, where can we find your work to learn more about you? Gosh, um, I'm on Substack. <laughs> right. <laughs> Reading to lead. Um, yeah. And thanks so much, Matt, for having me and Deborah. It was wonderful to meet you as well. Nice to meet you as well. Awesome. Thank you all. All right. Have a good night. Have a good night. night.